Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome to the crux of the story. I'm Mike Fernandez, and today Gary Sheffler and I are getting an opportunity to do what everyone says they would like to do, and that's to talk to the leader at the top. In this case, it's the leader of an institution of higher learning that Gary and I have both been associated with in recent years, Dr. Robert Brown, who is the president of Boston University. Gary, you must be looking forward to this opportunity. Oh, it's always a great opportunity, Mike, to interview your boss, you know, (laughs) career (laughs) limiting, but you know, there you go. Yeah, well, Bob Brown's a great guy. And and before we get on to our our discussion with him, let's talk a little bit about some of the items in the news. Las Vegas Raiders coach John Gruden resigned this past week. And as a little bit of reminder and refresher around this story, you know, it's been about two decades since something called the Rooney Rule was introduced. And and, and it's named for Dan Rooney, who was at at that time, the owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers. I think the Pittsburgh Steelers are still owned by the Rooney family. But he had this idea after some controversial firings of coaches who were black in the NFL, namely Dennis Green was fired from the Minnesota Vikings after his first losing season over a 10 year stretch where they'd made the playoffs eight out of 10 years. And then also Tony Dungy was fired by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers after a a nine and seven season in which his team went to the wildcard game and lost to the Eagles. I think that was the second year in a row that they had lost to the Eagles in the wildcard game. And and both of those coaches are black. Right. Right. And and so what the Rooney rule did and and what the owners agreed to do was to make sure that every coaching and general manager opening in the future from then on had a diverse slate of black and ethnic minority candidates. And, and, you know, for for a time, it really stood as as this emblem that the Mm -hmm. NFL, you know, was all about diversity and inclusion. Now, some very different statements were made in a series of emails exchanged between John Gruden, who most recently was the coach for the Las Vegas Raiders, but it was between him and uh, Washington Football Club general manager and president Bruce Allen. And the NFL's been doing a whole investigation around the culture of the Washington Football Club. But these were exchanges in email over a seven to eight year period between the two of them. And and, and they got kind of swept into this investigation. And in these emails, Gruden used racist language in reference to the executive director of the NFL Players Association and described players who took a knee in protest of the national anthem in racist terms as well, and then used homophobic slurs in reference to NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell and to Michael Sam, the NFL's first openly gay player. Gruden issued a statement 
when all of this came out saying he was stepping down because he didn't want to have this as a distraction for the Raiders. He added, I'm sorry, I never meant to hurt anyone. Gary, one has Gruden's apology, I mean, is Gruden's apology and resignation enough? And what does the NFL and the Washington Football Club need to do to restore trust and build credibility back again in terms of diversity and inclusion? You know, Mike, there's so much to say about this. And the first question, just on the art of the apology, in my crisis class, we talk about apologies and how to do them right. I always point out to the students when you say, I'm sorry if I hurt someone, (laughs) that's not a real (laughs) apology, right? So when you say I never meant to hurt anyone, it's sort of the same thing. Right. The faux apology. So it's not enough. And look, as you said, this came out of a broader investigation into the culture, which was clearly broken, toxic culture of the Washington Football Club, which until recently was known as the Redskins. Here's what I think happened here. And I could be completely wrong, Mike, mm-hmm. but I, I think someone in the NFL leaked these emails mm-hmm. about Gruden mm-hmm. and thought, you know, that would be the end of it, that Gruden would resign and the issue would be over. But now others mentioned in the emails, including the cheerleaders for the Washington Football Club, the NFL Players Association, others are saying, let us see all of the emails. Yeah, let's let's see. And the NFL is resisting because I'm sure it's not good. good. And, and I'm sure there's a, more racism in there in a league where most of the players are, in fact, black. So. I think this may be a own goal to use a soccer <laughs> phrase here by the NFL in some ways, yeah. but you, you have to be transparent now. If I were inside the NFL, I'd be advocating for how can we give people more of a view into what the investigation found as a whole. And, you know, either you do it on your own terms or you're going to do it on somebody else's terms is my perspective on these things. And then if I were the NFL, I'd do it on my own terms. Yeah. I, I agree with you on that. I, I think one apology was incredibly weak. And I do think the NFL has a responsibility to be as transparent as possible. What tends to happen in these kinds of controversies after something gets leaked, if you don't take action to sort of put your arms around it, more gets leaked yes. and you lose additional control of the story mm-hmm. and you lose all opportunity or at least near-term opportunity to regain trust. That's right. And, and and they do need to regain trust. You know, disclosure is your friend, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I've always said that to the people I've counseled. Yeah. So lest we think that bigotry and homophobic slurs are only at home in male-dominated sports leagues, Netflix, according to some, has joined the club. The subject of the Netflix controversy is a new special it is airing from comedian Dave Chappelle called The Closer. And the defense of the show and the comedian by Netflix executives figures into this story as well. Chappelle's 72-minute stand-up routine performed before a live audience in Detroit is described on Netflix's own site as raunchy and irreverent. And the setup is essentially this. He doesn't think transgender people have had it as bad as Black people, 
But in expressing that, he uses everything from crudely describing sexual organs to purposely using homophobic language to get a rise from his audience. The fallout is that transgender and LGBTQ employees, as well as their allies, are talking about staging a walkout at Netflix if it continues to air the program. Publicly, opinion writers, comedians who are LGBTQ allies, as well as others, are also taking the media streaming company and Dave Chappelle to task. Meanwhile, Netflix's two co-executives, co-chief executives, Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos, have defended Chappelle and the show. On an internal message board, Reed Hastings, interacting with employees, defended the show and Chappelle, calling Chappelle a unique voice and vowing to continue to work with him. And he responded to some unhappy employees by writing, in stand-up comedy, comedians say lots of outrageous things for a fact. Some people like that art form, or at least particular comedians and others do not. To another employee, Hastings wrote simply, the core strategy is to please our members. In other words, people who have subscriptions to Netflix. The other chief executive officer expressed his unwavering support for Mr. Chappelle and struck back at the argument that the comic statements could lead to violence. While some disagree, we have a strong belief that content on screen doesn't directly translate to real world harm. In another response, that same Coast Chief Executive defended the show by citing diverse content aired by Netflix and even commented that Netflix was working hard to ensure marginalized communities aren't defined by a single story. One show that he used as an example was a stand-up comedy show with a lesbian comedian, Hannah Gadsby. Gadsby, in turn, took to social media and pilloried the co-chief executive for dragging her name into his defense of Chappelle and blasted Netflix, and I quote, for its amoral algorithm cult. On top of all of this, a Netflix employee was fired last Friday for releasing information to the news media that documents that Dave Chappelle was actually paid $24.1 million for the closer. So Gary, lots to unpack here, but you worked for GE at a time that it had an entertainment division and owned NBC. Is Netflix doing the right thing internally and externally on this? wrapping itself in kind of protecting free speech and diversity of content? Or should it be taking a different course? And in the end, how does it recover reputationally from this fiasco? Well, you know, stand-up comedy has been given a wide berth on these kinds of issues, and it should. It's meant to satire in many ways and in many instances. And you go back to Mike R. When we were young, people like Lenny Bruce, Richard Mm -hmm. Pryor, using language that was considered inappropriate at the time or addressing issues, including race, Richard Pryor. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Mike, you mentioned my time at NBC or at GE with NBC. And we tried to have standards. You know, we tried to keep our hands off the, you know, artists and and performers and uh, et cetera, news anchors, but the, you have to have a line and, and it has to be known 
that is not crossable. And I, what I would say in this case is that the defense that Mr. Serendos provides that we have a strong belief that content on screen doesn't translate to real world harm seems to indicate, particularly in a letter to employees who are upset by your content, that there is no line, right? That, you know, it's, we're going to put on our air what we think is, is profitable. This is how I read his letter to employees. And we don't think it has a broader effect or it doesn't endanger certain minority or in some cases targeted populations. That's where they went wrong on this. If you want to say we believe in free speech and you stand by that and we believe it on our platform, what they needed to say here was why they believe Chappelle's comments did not cross a line. And they don't. They don't explain that in their public statements and in the, the particularly in the letter to their employees. I remember at GE, we often got, you know, it was 10% of our revenues. Uh, NBC, it was 90% of our public problems <laughs> on this, Mike, on this issue. Yeah. Right? People didn't yeah. like MSNBC or Keith Olbermann or that kind of thing. Yeah. And you have to say, you know, there are times when things cross a line. You remember Imus's comments oh, yeah. about, you know, the appearance of some African-American basketball players. Peter Arnett made some comments. About Michael America. Richards from Seinfeld fame. Exactly. So in those cases, GE decided that uh, they had crossed the line and, and that those people wouldn't continue working for the company. That's my view on this. I'm very protective of free speech. I believe yeah. in it. But I wonder if it would have been better if they described exactly how this crossed the line. Well, and you also wonder if you know, the executives are also defending their investment, right? I mean, that's a lot of money for one, yes. you know, 70-minute yes. show. And you just wonder if, you know, even if they felt it was a bridge too far, that somehow, you know, operation recovery was in place, yeah. as opposed to thinking about reputational recovery. Well, and you see this so often in news and entertainment when, you know, Bill O'Reilly at Fox, mm -hmm. you know, he was just a ratings juggernaut and it was clear he had done some unacceptable things in his mm -hmm. personal life and, and at Fox themselves. And certainly they considered the fact that he was the most watched program in cable news before yeah. they took action. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and so I'm not explaining it well, but that letter to employees, particularly to me, was full of corporate talking points. Yeah. And, and rather than a personal heartfelt assessment of the situation. So, so what, what should they be doing going forward? I think they need to have some conversation with these employees, particularly those who are offended by Chappelle specifically, to understand how they feel. And for them not to persuade, but to make sure they're under, understood. They're listening. About, that they're listening, right. And and so that's a beginning. And then they, meaning the executives of Netflix, that there is, if you're going to be in the content business, there are some lines that you're going to approach. Yeah. And in some ways, this is a little bit like some of our conversations around social media, right? That's right. Uh, you know, at some point, you, you've got to, you have a certain responsibility for the content being shared on your platform. Right. I, I understand Chappelle is being countercultural here. Right. Right. And he actually has 
in parts of the special, which I watched a couple mm-hmm. of days ago, there are mm-hmm. some points that he make that are interesting and good, I think. Mm-hmm. But Netflix has to articulate to its people what is and is not acceptable as a part Agreed. of their company. And, and I don't know enough to where to draw that line, but Netflix should. Yeah. Another interesting item in the news this past week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued an executive order to prohibit any entity, including private businesses, from enforcing a COVID-19 vaccine mandate Mm -hmm. on workers and called on state lawmakers to pass a similar ban into law. Now, back in September, the president of the United States, Joe Biden, issued his own executive order that requires federal contractors to ensure that their employees are fully vaccinated by December 8. So Gary, what do you make of that? But but, but most importantly, if you were the chief communications officer for one of those federal contractors with Mm -hmm. a headquarters or major operations in Texas, think AT&T, Dell Computer, Floor Corporation, Lockheed Martin, what would you be counseling your company's executives to do? Do you defy the governor? Do you defy the president of the United States? What do you do? You do what's right for your people. Mm -hmm. And and I I believe in this case, the mandatory vaccinations, my personal opinion, are the right thing to do. So you defy the governor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there have been some companies that have defied the governor in this case, some Texas-based, I, th- I believe Dell, yeah. yeah, as one of them. And you have to do what's right for your people. I was thinking about, Mike, when I knew you wanted to talk about this, I think it was United Airlines mm-hmm. that had like three pilots die of COVID, something like that. I know it had at least one. I remember had, a yeah, story about um, one pilot. Maybe I'm hyperbolizing, but the CEO went away yeah. And thought about, okay, what do we do here? And he said, yeah. that's it. That's enough. Yeah. We're going to require. Like, what's in the best interest of my pilots? What's in the best interest of my employees? Exactly. And, and, and forget about the politics and, and let Texas come after you. Mm-hmm. If that's what, you know, the result is, so be it. Yeah. But at least stand up for what you think is right for your people. That's the most important. Well, it's also interesting to me with these positions that some politicians are taking around mandates, whether it's on vaccine or mass, they seemingly don't like. And yet their own states have laws in the books that require as a condition of attending public school that students be vaccinated, you know, for, you know, various diseases. And, you know, in most states, I think all of them were required to buy auto insurance right. as a condition to having an automobile license, mm-hmm. you know, and in most states, we're also required to buy insurance for our homes. There, you know, we're also required by the federal government to, to have seatbelts in our cars. So the idea that, you know, freedom trumps mandates in all cases just is a fiction. Yeah. That actually what we've decided to do as a society is go down a pathway uh, which protects the largest number of citizens as much as possible. Yeah, it's, it's so unfortunate that the pandemic became politicized. Yeah. You know, tens of thousands of lives as a result, uh, lives I think have been lost. 
Yeah. And, and, and you just can't let that influence you as a leader, as a CCO, mm -hmm. you have to stand up for what's right for the organization that you work for and the people that you work with every day and Governor Abbott be damned. Well, I hate to be picking on the Lone Star State. Yeah, what is again. going on in Texas, Mike? I don't know, but, but, but Gary, I don't know if you saw this, but in Carroll Independent School I did see this. in South Lake, Texas, the executive director of curriculum and instruction for the entire district during an in-service training for teachers told the teachers, make sure that you have, if you have a book on the Holocaust, that you have one that has opposing and other perspectives. Now, Gary, I don't even know if there is such a thing as a pro-Holocaust book. Jeez. Maybe it means teachers are expected to send their students to neo-Nazi sites. I don't know. But this seems crazy to me. This is apparently the outgrowth of two things. One, a new Texas state law, and, and perhaps a society where most everything seemingly is boiled down to opposing sides or lenses versus really sorting out facts from fiction. The new Texas law, which was signed again by your favorite Texas governor, <laughs> Abbott, went into effect September 1 and states that a teacher may not be compelled to discuss a particular current event or widely debated and currently controversial issue of public policy or social affairs. But if they do, the teacher is required by this law to explore such issues from diverse and contending perspectives without giving deference to any one perspective. Now, Gary, you and I have been critical of news organizations that have treated two opposing views as similar and relevant, even when one of those views is fringe and not supported by facts. What say you about this realization of that theme? Well, and there is something, Mike, to this journalistic balance, mm -hmm. right? That not, yeah. every, not every point of view should be equally weighed. It's just not, you know, climate change is a great example, for, yeah. right? Yeah. But in this case, in other words, you, you don't get to write a story that on one hand, somebody says the sky is blue and somebody else says, no, it's purple. Right. Exactly right. And, and this and I, I hope this isn't offensive on this case, particularly I read on Twitter, someone said, you know, the only opposition book to the Holocaust is Mein Kampf. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. so there, there is it's absurd to think that there's a, another point of view on it. But here's what I would say. This is part of the politicization of the education system, which has existed, but it has accelerated recently over things like vaccines and masks and critical race theory. And it's another opportunity to, to fight the culture wars. Mm -hmm. It's absurd uh, mm -hmm. on its face. And I certainly hope no one in Texas is doing it. But what do you do as communicators? How do you think of this from a communication standpoint, Mike? Again, it's about truth decay, misinformation, yep. disinformation. It's just, we have to do something about this in our schools, with the media, and as professionals and our trade associations. And honestly, we have a failing education system in the United yeah. States, public schools. Well, well, and I think we just need to call it out. And, 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 and thank you for, for doing that in this context and, and, and talking about this. I have one last item. Okay. Um, and, Let me and, say and one so, more thing, Mike. Yeah. Let me say one more thing about the education system. When a member of Congress like Marjorie Taylor Greene 
makes an offensive comment about the Holocaust mm -hmm. and then retracts it because she went to the Holocaust Museum and learned about the Holocaust, we aren't doing enough to teach people. A member of Congress yeah. had to go to the Holocaust Museum. It's, it is just disgraceful. Anyway, sorry, I had to yeah. get that off no, my no, chest. No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> but, but closing out on, on, on something that's more up our sort of corporate alley. Last week, Volkswagen's CEO, Herbert Dies, surprised his executives who were attending an executive conference by dialing in Tesla CEO, Elon Musk, to join them via video link. Dees said it was to drive home the point that Volkswagen needs a new mindset that includes faster decisions, less bureaucracy, more responsibility. Dees even tweeted externally about the encounter afterwards. Gary, I have a few questions for you about this. One, is Elon Musk the right messenger? to bring into a meeting like this at Volkswagen to underscore an appropriate new mindset. And then two, when you were at GE as the chief communications officer, were there times when you brought in outside speakers to underscore a point or a new vision or a new company direction? And, and, and when was it most successful? And I have some ideas on this as well. Yeah, and I give Volkswagen credit because clearly they're going all electric. Mm -hmm. And and so Musk has been successful in in doing that ahead of them. So why not? He's clearly a provocative guy who's had success in this area. And I, we did this all the time, Mike, at GE. Mm -hmm. We would bring in competitors. We would bring in customers to challenge our thinking. And it's best, it's best when they do that, when yeah. they don't come in and parrot, you know, what you think the CEO or the board or whomever we even brought in Mike Nelson Peltz, the activist investor who was, uh -huh. you know, sort of circling us, and, you know, and so, which I thought was an extraordinary conversation between him and ML at our officers meeting. That's when it's the best. I learned so much in just listening to Peltz that night after dinner. I do remember a couple of times I brought people in to Crotonville, our learning center, who had maybe a little bit too much of a sort of out there view. And you've got to pay attention to that, too. I brought in a crisis counselor who was very pugilistic and it was nearly a riot in the room. So oh. <laughs> from the so conservative GE, wrong. they could go wrong as well, too. You have to understand your culture. And, and so anyway, you, you said you had some thoughts. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I, I, I actually thought this was really smart and ingenious. Yeah, and, and like you, and in, in different corporate environments, have brought in lots of outside speakers, uh, basically as you said, to try and challenge the status quo, challenge thinking, push people a little bit, bringing in activist investors as well as bringing in the heads of environmental NGOs yeah, that yeah. maybe we hadn't had any conversation with in the past. And, and, and probably the most successful thing I ever did, or I, I, I was a party to, was in my early days, my first job as a chief communications officer. We had, a, I was working at the time for a company called US West. And it was at the time, the smallest of the former baby bells. Mm -hmm. And it expanded across a territory that was 14 states in the Midwest and in the West. 
And the Wall Street Journal at one point had said tongue in cheek, sort of referencing that we weren't as important as others, as the other former baby bells. He said in U.S. West Territory, there in many of those states, there, there are more sheep than people. <laughs> and, and I actually wrote a tongue-in-cheek editorial or, 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 or letter to the editor, and which they also put as a headline. The headline over it was Sheep Dip when it was published. But all of that said, what we felt we needed to do is we needed to have strong third-party verifiers Absolutely. for what we were doing from a technology standpoint, which was first in class. It was leading edge. And so what we did is we brought in some of our customers in those states, oh, namely yeah. John Chambers, who was the CEO of Cisco Systems <laughs> at the time, and Steve Ballmer, who was the CEO at the time of Microsoft. And they proved our story. And I got to tell you, it paid off big time because over the next several months, the, the stock took off even in comparison to peers. Excellent. Well, Mike, as you say, that's that's the thing, particularly culture change. When you, when you want to be, you know, Musk has done this. He's been, you know, forceful. He's been aggressive. He's been a little bit out there with statements he's made. But it's it's the mindset, it's the attitude, I'm sure, of speed, being willing to change that VW is trying to instill in its team. And he's got it. Yeah. Well, one person we both know who has reshaped an institution through a change in mindset and who had this choosing to be great rallying call when he became Boston University president is Robert Brown. So let's go to our conversation with President Brown. So as Mike said earlier, our guest today is Robert Brown, Bob Brown, who's the president of Boston University. This fall on the crux, we're really focusing on the intersection of business and society and the role that communications plays in, I like the phrase, unlocking solutions to the challenges we face globally, such as climate change, racial inequities, economic inequities, misinformation, and the list is quite familiar to all of our listeners. Having said that, while I'm usually fairly confident on these podcasts on the crux, I'm, I'm fairly nervous today. You know, it's always a career-limiting opportunity to interview your boss. And Bob is, as I said, the president of Boston University, has been since 2005. And I've got a fun fact that I'm going to tell you about Bob, which I didn't know before I did some research on his bio for this program. Bob earned his BS and MS degrees in chemical engineering at the University of Texas at Austin and a PhD in the subject at the University of Minnesota. He is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the National Academy of Engineering, and the National Academy of Sciences, among other professional societies. He previously was on the faculty at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he also served as provost. He became BU's president in 2005 and quickly set out defining the long-term future of the university. And I believe culminating, or one of the proudest moments for Bob, is BU joining the American Association, or the Association of American Universities, AAU, a prestigious organization of 62 leading research universities in the United States and Canada. Bob, welcome to the Crux. 
Well, Gary and Mike, thank you for having me. It's, a, I, it's really a pleasure to be here. I always enjoy talking about BU. Well, let me start, Bob, by talking about you just for a little bit more here. Now, while I was doing some research on you for the, for the podcast, I learned that in 2008, you were named one of the top 100 chemical engineers of the modern era by the American Institute of Chemical Engineers. So, of course, I went, I went and did some research on that. I looked it up. And it says, quote, unquote, you were recognized for modeling of materials, parentheses, e.g. semiconductors, parenclose, processing phenomena. What's that all about? We're, we're two communicators here, but I have no idea what that means, Bob. So I, I am by training a chemical engineer, but by action, really an applied mathematician and an <laughs> analyst. And so I spent most of my academic career, 25 years working with graduate students, modeling how you form materials, either semiconductors or polymers or other kinds of material. And I was one of the early ones in chemical engineering to do very complex mathematical modeling of materials in the field. And that's, I think, why they represent, they recognize me in that way. And when you say that, it makes me feel very old. <laughs> well, a, a little truth in packaging, Bob. I have a daughter who has a PhD in computational chemistry, and I don't know what she does either. But, I, but you know, I'll come back. Now that you mentioned that, I have a way, I think we'll see where the conversation goes. Okay. I circle back to that. Well, let me let me start by talking about BU now. It's an amazing enterprise. I've been there three years, and I, and I just love it. More than thirty thousand students, four thousand faculty, ten thousand employees, more than three hundred programs of study at the graduate and undergraduate level, and this includes a law school, a med school, fine arts, theology, business, and best of all communication. So I come from a, a company, and Mike does as well, been at companies that are large and diverse. And I always, I'm a student of leadership. How do you manage, Bob, something that big? It's a really fascinating question. I think one of the things that I love about BU is the amazing diversity and variety intellectually of the institution. And that was one of the things that drew me to it. it. Because we're this institution, as you said, that has high quality undergraduate programs mixed with blended with leading professional programs operating both at the undergraduate and the graduate level. And then finally, we have research and scholarship that blends across the mm -hmm. whole thing. One of the things that I think is a really exciting part of BU that is a bit of a secret sauce where you don't talk about much around the institution, around the institutions is we relatively centrally budgeted as an institution. So mm -hmm. you from GE, we don't run like a conglomerate. Okay. okay? We're not a, a bunch of pasted on businesses, each with a PL and the president that runs them independently. We have great deans and, and uh, academic leaders and administrative leaders who work amazingly well together to do it as, with a collective vision. And that was one of the things that excited me about coming to BU 16 years ago. And because what, that collective vision allows us to strategically focus on things that other institutions may not be able to do very well. And I believe one of the, the things we do better than most is we have relatively low boundaries between our programs, schools, and colleges. And you see that with your students walking in coming into your college, into, into comm communications and going out and doing other things 
You see it in many different ways. You see people on the communications faculty collaborating with the faculty of computing and data sciences, mm -hmm. you know, things that would be hard to do other places. We try to be very good at. Yeah. Now, Boston University is also in a big, complex city. And I can remember I went to I went to school in D.C. and I had it in my head that it was pretty important for the university I attended to have a a presence and a tie to the local community and its citizens, given BU is one of several elite universities in the Boston area. How do you see BU fitting into community and society and perhaps even being of service to it? You know, it's a great question, Mike. And, and I think the way I would start the answer to that is to start, as I do in many cases, focusing on our mission right? Our mission as a major research university is simply put in two major goals. One is to educate bright, ambitious, academically qualified students from all backgrounds, kind of with the hope that they're going to go forward and be leaders in our society, whether it's locally or globally. Mm -hmm. That's kind of goal number one. Goal number two is to do that research and scholarship that will create the knowledge to give us solutions to some of society's big challenges going forward. And so those are the two primary pillars of what we have to do. If we don't succeed at those two things, we fail society as a leading research university. So that's a big picture. Mm -hmm. Now we do those two things in the context of being a major private university in the city of Boston and knowing in a very enlightened self-interest way that so goes Boston, so goes Boston University. If Boston doesn't thrive, we don't thrive. We don't become a place that students want to come and faculty and staff want to come and live. So what we've tried to do is blend our focus on Boston with those two objectives that we have. And so I think one of the biggest pride points we have is the long-term relationship this university has with Boston Public Schools. Mm -hmm. Since 1971, we've had aid programs for Boston Public School students to attend BU, irrespective of their ability to pay. One program is called the Menino Scholars, which is really full tuition scholarships for only BPS students based on their academic accomplishment. And then we spread that in my time to the Boston Service Scholars, where we meet full need without loan for any BPS student that gets in. Mm -hmm. And then the last piece of this that we put in place was to meet full need without loans for all BPS students who transferred to BU from wow. another school, which is normally a community college. Exactly. And if you went to the ceremony with the school superintendent and me back, it was second week of September, we inducted 84 new BPS students into BU representing about four and a half million dollars of financial aid for this year. Wow. And we commit to all four years. So that's like $20 million of financial aid. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and the other part of that, that I would add to that, Gary, their graduation rate is actually absolutely the same as the rest of the class. That's right. right. Really proud of that. Right. You know, in our, your time and over the last 10 years, we've doubled our undergraduate financial aid budget essentially on the need basis. It's now over $350 million annually. And with that, we have more Pell Grant students. We have more underrepresented minorities. But our commitment to Boston, going back to Mike's question, I think of that as a pillar of it, right? And it's what we do well. 
and we helped the city do that well. And there are other ways we serve Boston through our dental school or our medical school that both serve patients uh, from underserved communities, both through our dental clinics in Boston Medical Center and now San Elizabeth Medical Center up in Austin, Brighton. And these are patients that include large numbers of, with federal and state aid support, underserved communities. And then the final thing I would add to that, which I think is really important, is that if you look at our professional schools, COM is a great example of this through internships and faculty members yes. that are here. And College of Fine Arts that has a huge number of BSO faculty members on its faculty. The Wheelock College of Education and Human Development, where their research agenda is what they call evidence-based research in public education. We have strong connectivity academically to the urban environment, which is, I think, really important for us so that we're in those important conversations about the arts, conversations about public education with the city. And then finally, you know, sometimes it's just about money and, and trying to get help the city do things that are good for everyone. And we participate in financing a lot of urban public realm projects, essentially those around our campuses, like streetscape and T-stops and bike mm -hmm. lane and all that kind of urban realm work that has to be done. And, and it really has, to, it's, you know, it's again, it's enlightened self-interest. It helps us, mm -hmm. makes our campuses more accommodating for our students and safer in terms of the moving people around on bikes and and skateboards and everything else they're moving on today. Wow, that's both comprehensive and impressive. Going to kind of the global observation that you had, as as has already been stated, you know, we have a lot of people from the world of business who listen to this podcast, and businesses increasingly talk of stakeholder capitalism and social responsibility and defining how they can contribute to solving global challenges like perhaps climate change. How do you view BU's role in delivering value to society in terms of problem solving, or as you look at your university business plan and your curriculum and research agendas? Well, you know, it, it's always going, I go, I'm going to go back to those two pillars I talked about, education and research, right? And what you, you try to do, and you can see this in our strategic plan, is align those pillars around both being foundational on the educational side. You know, an example would be in, in COM and communications where you're trying to give a student both the foundational education so that they can report on any kind of story and know how to get the knowledge to do that and then have the professional skills to, to do that uh, ethically and, and efficiently, right? Uh, with high quality. And, and we're trying to do that same thing. We're trying to give our students, and especially our undergraduate students, an educational foundation and then lead them into those discussions of the most important and pressing issues in the world and hope that they will become the generation that helps us find the solution. And so when you think about something like climate change, there, there's, there's a couple of pieces to the puzzle that you have to work on. One is as an institution, we have to be leaders in trying to solve the problem ourselves, for ourselves. And, and just like a large corporation, minimizing our carbon footprint. And then on the other side of that, since we live in a, in a city by the sea, 
we're going to have the challenge that we're going to have to mitigate the effects of climate change. Yeah, exactly. So we put in place a climate action plan in 2015-16 that does all those things. And one tries to decrease our energy utilization. We want to be carbon neutral as an institution by 2040. We're well on that way, on our way there now because of a, a large wind farm offset project that we are part of in uh, South Dakota. We're moving our buildings to be carbon neutral. The big building you see across the street from you going up from, from COM, the Data Sciences Center, will be the largest geothermally heated and cooled building in New England and will be carbon neutral when it opens next year. So we're doing those things, driving our investments on campus. But then we also are very active in, in the city's efforts. We're very, very active in the Green Ribbon Commission. We're very active, our faculty were, in the developing of the Carbon-Free Boston Plan. Faculty from Earth and Environment were leaders in that plan. So we're very active helping the city think through these issues as well. And then the final piece of that is we're hiring faculty in a number of different academic units to lead the research and teaching. And I would just add that we put in place interdisciplinary centers like the Institute for Sustainable Energy Initiative on Cities, which to bridge people across different academic units to bring people together. And what you see in those efforts is we have a strong urban focus. Many of our leaders are not just interested in climate change and mitigation. They're really interested in climate change and mitigation in cities. In, in urban settings, yes. In urban settings, right, yeah. which makes sense for us. Well, that's really a great answer. And, and I love, Mike, the building that's going up across from us is the one that looks like stacked books. That's uh -huh. it. Uh, it's really an amazing, amazing structure. And, and watching it go up has been so entertaining, to say the what, least. It's what, really what, extraordinary. Gary, what will be really entertaining is what you might not realize is there's a lot of steel in that building that comes out. Oh, is that right? Yes, that's holding up the cantilevers. Ah, okay. And so it'll be about the January timeframe. They'll start taking steel off of it. It's just like a Jenga tower. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that's amazing. That's I don't amazing want to look. take that last piece out. Well, <laughs> you know, we said at the, the topping off ceremony is if I see 150 construction workers running down the street, I'm following them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, so you've been here since 2005. You've been in the role since 2005. But the last two years have been extremely challenging for leaders and including you, I'm sure. We'll get to be you specifically in a minute. Rising expectations for leaders to be more visible and vocal on social, environmental issues, race, all of the things we've been talking about. And the same can be said, you know, in, in for colleges and universities, as we've seen in business. How is that expectation that leaders will step out on issues and be visible on issues that maybe go beyond the boundaries of your campus or your enterprise? and be social leaders, be publicly visible social leaders on some of these things that are controversial or dividing our, our country. How has that changed your job, Bob, or has it? Well, it, it is, a, it is a, a, a really important issue, Gary, and you're right. It, the times have changed and there's enormous pressure for a university president and for me to speak on any number of issues. And it's almost a weekly drumbeat on something. Mm -hmm. It's just become more intense over time. It's particularly difficult for a university president, I believe, 
from other leaders in society. Because not because university presidents don't have strong opinions. It's because what a university campus should be. University campus should be a place where scholars, students, and staff have differing opinions. They don't all sit on one side of an issue. And that's actually what we want. That's the campus I want to lead. It's, I want the classrooms and the conference rooms to be civil places where there's civil discourse about complicated topics. And one thing that I think makes it very complicated is when I speak for the institution, I overlay those conversations with a point of view that becomes the institutional point of view. I can't mm -hmm. have my own point of view. It is an right. institutional point of view. And I believe, and I, I was raised to believe this, that a university president be very careful not to damp and alienate pieces of their community on very important topics, right? And I, you know, I could go through chapter and verse of ones that, you know, where that would be true. So when I think about these topics and I think about doing this, I really think about what the impact of what I will say has on the Boston Universe community first. That's my first responsibility mm -hmm. as president. Am I helping or hurting that conversation within our community? But there are times when my conscience just takes over and I feel like I have to speak, right? Uh, and all human beings, I think, have this challenge. In a number of times, and it was really in the previous administration, federal administration, mm -hmm. I spoke about immigration and what I thought were xenophobic policies, not because I was supporting, I, I felt like I was supporting our international student community, but more importantly than that, I thought I, as a fourth, fifth generation German immigrant, I was speaking for myself, right? right? Because you know that if you go back in history, that same xenophobia was there against Germans at the beginning of World War I. And so, you know, this, this is not a new phenomenon. We tend to forget it. And, and Bob, that is, that's a great answer. You know, these debates go on on campuses across the country. And they, they particularly get, you know, discussed around guest speakers and, and that kind of thing. But you've really framed it, I think, well. And there is a role for your own personal set of beliefs as a leader, I believe. And so you sort of answered my next question. Mike and I counsel leaders all the time on this topic is when to speak out and you know, when to shut up. And, but you've, you've framed that really well. You think about the impact on the university itself and you overlay sort of. Um, well, and, and additionally, on top of that, I, what I also loved about your answer is that as an institution, you're looking to foster intellectual curiosity yeah. and, and an intellectual debate that's respective of one another. So, so I think that's a value too. Absolutely. You know, where I'd like to take the conversation now is one of the things, things we did prior to setting this up and when we knew we were going to have you is said, you know, we always have questions, but it would be kind of fun to crowdsource a few questions from some BU students. And so the first one actually comes from, from Chris, our BU grad student, who's the producer of our podcast. And his question focuses on the impact of growing student activism. His question, younger generations, primarily Gen Z and millennials, are more vocal about their concerns of climate change. Being that Gen Zs are current and future BU students, 
What role did that have in BU's decision to divest from fossil fuels? I want to thank Chris for the question. I think, <laughs> you know, this, and I, you know, when we made our divest statement, I actually thanked our community of yes. BU and, and their students uh, because they are vocal and they are passionate about it, right? Mm -hmm. But you know, the thing that I, I, I'm most proud of is, uh, in, you know, maybe it's the engineer in me, is the process that our trustees and we put in place and the participation of our students for time in that process, which I think led, you know, say a few words, led to really a great outcome. You know, when we look back about 2010, we could see coming that there was going to be a set of issues that we needed to deal with as a board of trustees and an institution that were going to need to form a way of having that student voice in a room in a thoughtful way. Remember what I said about the differing views and how you create a table around a conference room and how educate people and, and you listen to both sides of an argument. So we formed a thing called the Advisory Committee on Social Responsible Investing. It's an advisory committee to the Board of Trustees, chaired by a trustee, a person with the patient, patience of Job, with two other trustees. It has three faculty on it and three students, two student leaders from student government and one leader from graduate student government. And that has been the committee that we have used as the forum to talk about all kinds of divestment issues and investment issues, but really on the fossil fuel side of it. That committee has worked for seven or eight years on these topics. They, they're the ones that recommended the climate action plan to the board of trustees. They're the ones that led us in 2016 to divest from coal and tar sands, but did not, the board did not agree with them in total divestment. They then kept going in the last several years and built a proposal, which is outlined in my letter to the community. People say, what else was in the proposal? It is essentially the proposal in my letter that is one of the most sophisticated divestment proposals to come to a board in the United States. And I, could, I won't tell you who, yeah. what institutions have been calling us to ask how in the world we got there, right? <laughs> uh, Great. But, but it really is a tribute to that committee in their work because they spent the time to understand how endowments work mm -hmm. and spend the time understanding what climate change, what it means to divest from fossil fuels and what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. So if you look at that proposal, for example, you'll see details that say, does that proposal guarantee we will never invest in ExxonMobil? No, it does not. If you read it carefully, it says, if ExxonMobil starts a major fossil-free fuel business, and we become convinced that that's going to become a major part of their business, we could invest in ExxonMobil, mm -hmm. right? And, you know, saying you're not going to invest in one of the major energy companies today with their vast resources and their knowledge of distribution and production of energy right. is cutting off your nose to spite your face. Right. Well, in fact, there's an economist who writes today in the Financial Times. Now, he also happens to be a board member of an energy company, but he makes this same point 
is that one has to be careful about these kinds of moves in the sense that some of the people best able to solve those some of those problems are people who are in that industry today. And then similarly, I, I would imagine that this was not an easy task for you from an, an intellectual curiosity standpoint, coming in as a, as, as a chemical engineer and, and, and realizing that, you know, as much as we would all like to think, we can't push a button and get to the other side of energy transition. It has lots of moving parts and it's going to take some amount of time. You know, in, 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 you know, if you look at what is really different today than in, in my mind, in, and I think the board's mind in 10 years ago, 10 years ago, we didn't have a path. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a path that really had corporate backing, uh, private sector backing and momentum. And we had less data, frankly, from the IPCC, right? Mm-hmm. 10 years later, there is a path. And it's not just a political statement any longer. It right. really is a path. And I think everyone feels really energized by that. Are we too late? That's a worry. That's a worry. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think part of the challenge is too, with, with, and I've seen other universities go through a similar task or effort, is, is that they shut it off automatically on those companies, you know, like, like you were mentioning. And, and I think that that's unfortunate, not only because they're in a position to help, but also because you know groups like the International Energy Association, or agency rather, IEA, shows I, that to some extent, extent we're going to continue to be somewhat dependent on on some amount of fossil fuel. Even the computers we're using today to do this to do this podcast are, are highly dependent on fossil fuels. So anyway, my other question from a student is from Lena Iskandarian, who's a student in the College of Communication. She said, if you had to choose one pressing issue that is higher ed's responsibility to solve, what would it be? Oh, you know, and I actually uh, so glad Lena asked this question and you included it because I think that this is really allows us to focus the conversation on what we do, because I think the biggest challenge we face is to give access to all the bright and ambitious students who can succeed at Boston University access to us, even if they can't afford to come mm-hmm. on their own. You know, I talked earlier about our increasing amount of need-based financial aid. We need to continue that trajectory just to increase access because going back to what we owe society, we owe society to educate the population and to, to create that, that educated leadership that can advance, advance us in many ways. And we've got to be inclusive of everyone. And the only way we can do that is through financial aid. And this is the, you know, the challenge in this country in my lifetime. I'm a product of only public institutions. I went to, as you know, University of Texas, University of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. I would not have gone to the university except that it was only 25 bucks a semester when I went. That's how old <laughs> I'm. Right? <laughs> right? That's how I afforded to go to the university. Yeah. That's not true of state schools anymore. No. Right? State universities, because the aid to state universities has gone down on a per capita basis, inflation-adjusted basis, they're charging thousands of dollars to go. And then, of course, we're charging tens of thousands of dollars. But on the other side, we're spending every nickel we can put together trying to give as much financial aid 
to to make to have access to students at the university. But I would say, simply put, that is our biggest challenge. And it's we think of it as a challenge in uh, undergraduate education, but it's also becoming a challenge in graduate and professional education. You know, if you want to be a family physician or a pediatrician, you don't you're not going to make the money an orthopedic surgeon makes. Right. And and if you, the medical school education, your debt from medical school will stay with you a long time. Not if you're an orthopedic surgeon, but if you're a pediatrician. So we have to figure out how to buy down the cost in some of these professions at the graduate level as well. And the same thing's true in law school. If you're gonna be a public defender or work on immigration law, you're not gonna make the partner salary that, that pays for law school. Right. So this, this is a challenge we have in private education. But Bob, BU has been making a lot of progress in that area. The number of Pell assisted oh, yeah. students is way up as I, I read your annual report. And this, and, and, and which leads to my next question about diversity on campus and, and students, faculty, staff. And I was reading your, your letter, the entering class, which is quite large <laughs> this year for a variety of reasons, but the most diverse ever at yeah. BU, that entering class. And in fact, the African-American black number of students increased by more than 70%. Having said all that, how do you feel about where you are in providing access to BU to more diverse students? Well, that's a, if I focus on students, we're making progress. Yeah. You know, I can yeah. see the numbers going up. If you look at that class, Gary, and just look at the domestic part of the class, mm -hmm. it, it's a majority minority class. Wow. Right to take the international and put the international students in is vastly a majority. 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 Yeah. Yeah. That the, we have over 50% people of color in the domestic part of the class. Is it equally distributed among uh, all races and ethnic groups? No. Right. Yeah. And we're making progress at the African American, Latinx, Hispanic student body, but it, it's going to keep requiring us to put more financial aid into the mix. We know that of our Pell Grant students, about 50% of our Pell Grant students are underrepresented minorities. So we know that that's an important part of what we're doing in terms of diversifying the class. We've come a long way, but we've still got a long way to go. But the good news is you can see it. You can measure yeah. it. You can see it. You can work at it. And, and on the other side, when you look at retention and graduation rate, we are very comfortable and confident that our systems internally are working really well. And you probably noticed this year, we formed the Newberry Center for First Generation Students. Yeah, that's a great, just say a little bit about that, Bob. I think that's well, so, you know, this I'm, is a, I'm first generation. As, uh, as was I. Uh, yeah. As, as all of us. Huh? We had a committee that was chaired by Christine McGuire, who's our vice president of uh, enrollment management and Crystal Williams, who's our Associate Provost for Diversity. Diversity, community. They put together a, a report this several years ago, looking at how our first gen and Pell Grant students did. And we could see that there were places we needed to reinforce their sense of community. You know, and, and, and we can talk among ourselves, we're all first gen students, but we went to college without a support structure from home that many of our students have, mm -hmm. 85 our students have it, right? They wow. have at home parents 
that went to college. They know what it's like to go to college. They know what it takes to succeed in college. They've had that all through their K through 12 life and the expectation they would go to college. And first gen, gen students don't all have that. First gen students come to college without that support structure. And you have to figure out a way to replace it and give it to them so that when they hit some of the bumps that you're going to hit during your four years as an undergraduate, that you can navigate it. Mm -hmm. And that's really why we focused on the Newberry Center. Now, the reason it's called the Newberry Center is a fantastic story, and you probably know, is that Newberry College, which was a college that was born as a junior college in the Boston area, went out of business, closed, and they approached a number of schools and said, if we gave you part of our assets that we have at the end, what would you do with it? And we said we would focus all on first-gen students. Yes. A great gift to us, and we named it the Newberry Center. And there's a wonderful plaque describing that physically in the center. That's, that's fantastic. So my, my next question also gets, Bob, to this point of access. And the last two years changed, uh, obviously, because of the pandemic. Lots of uh, institutions, enterprises... By the way, Mike, I'm going to say nice things about our president again here uh, as well. I'm doing a really good job, Bob. Of, you know, I'm noting it. Yes, thank you. Though it was just a great job on testing all of that. It was so well done. I, I mean, I literally had to walk next door to the engineering school and get a test. And so easy to do. Took all of the fear out of it. And, and I was just impressed. And the results speak for themselves. BU was able to operate in these unbelievably difficult conditions. You know, we got our, the students for our 2020 finally got their graduation ceremony recently, yeah. live and in person. So, so nice. But obviously the pandemic leads to some longer term decisions for you, Bob, right? And, and I won't bore you with it, but I read a, a piece in Harvard Business Review recently about the hybrid campus and, and these two experts on higher ed said the hybrid campus, as we're calling the concept, transcends our current idea of blended education into a more holistic vision for delivering everything an institution offers from academic advising to courses to career services. So as you think about this access to education that you talked about, how do you think about the future of BU and this idea of the hybrid campus? Tough one, I know. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a really good question. But first, I want to thank you for the kind words about our COVID-19 response. I do want to say that. And, and you know, I, I just feel so blessed to have a great group of leaders we assembled in the spring of 2020 who would follow the science, not the yes. policy, right? And I could talk endlessly about what people did. The one thing I'll go back to when you give me my introduction, if you, I could send you the link there's actually a Proceedings of the National Academy of Science paper that was published in September by me, and the sole <laughs> author, of modeling of how to do this. Really? I didn't know that. No, it's a little that's, known fact. That's fantastic. <laughs> it goes that's back great. to what I did when I was, a, I never thought that what I did as a faculty member would play any role. <laughs> in, I was a but it was actually kind of my hobby doing the darkest hours. Of uh, I'll have but, to take a look. Yeah, That's great. It, uh, it showed the model shows very conclusively that if you have even a highly vaccinated campus, which we do, 
99%, that if you have less than a 100% effective vaccine and you have a virulent strain or transmissible strain, you need to keep testing. And so we knew that when we, you know, a lot of people said, why are you still testing this year? And guess what? The disease is still spreading, even though exactly. everybody's back, right? Amazing. Uh, Amazing. But the model tells you that. So the, your question about hybrid campuses, I'm not trying to duck, right? <laughs> but but I will, I, I'll be a bit provocative compared to the people in the Harvard Business Review. In that, If you look at our strategic plan for 2030, which is in development, it's in production now, I mean, as a document, and we tested it against everything we learned during COVID. We believe at the undergraduate level, believe holistically and totally in the residential campus experience. Yeah. We believe that there's so much that happens in the growth of our students intellectually that occurs outside the classroom and occurs with other people. And we do not believe that we know how to duplicate that online. And everything we learned from our students last year told us that, right? That having your education in your bedroom is not the same thing, right? And, and so then that, so on the undergraduate level, we're really committed to that residential experience. And that gives you a set of constraints that on access, because it says you're really limited to the number of students that you have in the number of beds you have for them, right? That, that those two things are linked. Exactly. Particularly in and, Boston, right? And particularly. particularly in Boston, right? We do see online education and, and uh, the tools we learned augmenting that. I think that you'll see as time goes on, as we press forward, you'll see very big uses of online education for things like internships, for study abroad opportunities. You can open up study abroad opportunities as an example by having hybrid learning opportunities back on campus. So students don't have to pick so much which semester they go in, depending on what courses they have to take, right? right? And this is really true, not so much for communications where the college does a really great job of making study abroad work, but in fields like the STEM fields where their curriculum is really tight and it's very hard for them to do a semester off campus. So you're going to see things like that have, uh, affecting undergraduate education. But I think the most important use of this technology and the, what we've learned is going to be in graduate professional education. Because what we know now is that our faculty will get involved. They will do it. Right. And now we also know there's a lot of non-traditional learners, students who cannot return to campus, who are working, carrying out their lives, who need additional education. They Sometimes they need a credential. Sometimes they don't need a credential. But they want to advance their careers through education, and this is going to be a tremendous vehicle to do it. We launched, you probably know, in the fall of 2020, we've been planning it for 18 months, our online MBA, right? And it was our first major program in the space. By that, I mean, I'm not going to say how many students we want to aim for eventually. Right now, we have 1,200 students in the program. Wow. Wow. And we we put it in at a disrupt price. It's $24,000 all in six modules, each one costing $4,000. 
You do it over whatever time scale you want to do it. It's interesting. We're in the second year. We had an over 90% retention rate from the first year. So it looks like nobody's traditional online program, right? But it's disruptively priced. If you go out and look at other parents, Absolutely. <laughs> they're, they're pricing theirs at four or five times what we're pricing. On. Absolutely. And so I think that's our future. You're going to hear more about that in the coming months. This, uh, if any CEOs are listening, you know, this is a, an online MBA program at $24,000 that a corporate partner could, could come could in having those conversations. Jump on, yeah. And, and so you could have everyone take the accounting module or the finance module or organizational module, strategy module, or you can take the whole degree. We also give certificates. But so I, I think that's where we are, Gary. Now, will that be where we are in 10 years? I'm not sure, right? Interesting. But it's a moving landscape, but that's, that's the bets we're placing right now. Yeah, this has been wonderful, Bob. One final question. You've, you've been president at uh, BU for more than 15 years. What advice do you have for other university presidents relative to communications as well as engaging your stakeholders from students to faculty to alumni? I, you know, this is something I always struggle with, Mike, because I actually don't think I'm the greatest communicator, right? <laughs> I, I wasn't trained to do that. This has always been something that I had to work on. I know when I can communicate well and when I, in what forums I do that well. And it actually goes back to being a, a teacher. I, I communicate best in a classroom, in forums of that kind of size. And so I would say from my own personal experience, I visit academic departments every year. I visit, talk with, have dinner with student leaders like two or three times a year. And these are usually forums of 30 to 50 people, right? Where you can, well, usually what I'll do is make a presentation. Gary may have seen me do this. Yes. And then open the floor up for questions. And I'm very comfortable taking on a question anybody has, Right. And I'm very comfortable saying, I don't know, and I'll get back to you. I love that kind of interaction because I think it's, it's genuine, right? And the second is I like the feedback I get when I can get a great conversation going. I know that that's, that's difficult when there's 7,600 staff and 3,500 faculty. You can't do that. And, you know, the COVID was a case and that we were firing out. I was writing letters to the faculty at you know, in the middle of the night that was going to go out the next morning trying to get the tone right and, and, and get the I don't, I don't know buried in the letter in a confident way, right? You know, in terms of being a, a, a president this long, I think there's really no magic to it. I think what has helped me is I think I have a pretty good North Star about what's ethically right, what is morally right for the university. But more importantly, there are equally importantly to that is where to move the university to enhance the environment of the university as a high quality teaching and learning environment in a research university, right? And so that's always the North Star I'm moving toward. And I try to be consistent in my communications that that's, you know, that's what you get with me. That's, that's what's in me. And it's very much like any journey that you'd follow a star. You run into hills and valleys and lakes and rivers and things that divert you around that journey. You know, and I think of the, you know, I never would have guessed that so late in my career, I would do 18 months of COVID, right? No. 
But the interesting thing is when you, when you think about it as a journey, you know, to making the university better, doing COVID well is important because you can, you can undo a lot of good things you've done if you don't do it well. Well, that's, that, that's great advice for leaders, that self-awareness, Mike, about what you're good at and what you're not mm -hmm. good at, and maybe delegating sometimes some of the communications to other members of your staff. It's uh, something that we think about a lot in the work that, that we do. And by the way, you are hereby invited to come by the College of Communication and have a session with us. We have a really dynamic new dean over there, Mariette Christina. Oh, yeah. She's terrific. And I know the students, and I know you get around campus a lot, Bob. I'm, I'm half joking here. They would all love to see you over at Com. Well, this has been fantastic. Bob, we really appreciate it. I kept you much longer than I said we would, but it's because it was a really terrific conversation. Bob, thank, uh, thank you, you for being on, on the okay. crux. Okay. Take, 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 take care, Bob. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.